CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to the SBF Defense on the Coindesk Podcast Network. This show is produced by Coinage and distributed by Coindesk. Be sure to follow the Coindesk Podcast Network for all of our shows and head to Coindesk.com for all our Sam Bankman-Fried coverage. Thanks for listening. I'm Coinage host Zach Guzman. And I'm Zach Abrams, head writer. And we've spent the last few weeks digging through thousands of documents, digging into SBF's proposed defense and lawsuits against not just FTX Abrams, but also Binance. Also Binance, also the debtors reports, uh, affidavits from lawyers. There's truly so much documentation in this case. This is all pre-trial. Whereas we've been seeing in all these documents, the defense and the prosecution are fighting over millions and millions of documents that are going to be the core of this case from FTX's Google Drive. Uh, It's one of the most document heavy cases, I believe, the legal system has ever seen, according to some reports. And it's also even separate from the bankruptcy that FTX is going through, which also we've been digging through those. So it's document hell we've been in for the last, I don't know, more than a month now at this point. And, you know, it's been interesting because as we prepare for what's going to happen in SBF's trial, as you said, there's also this kind of pre-show going on in terms of the back and forth between the defense and prosecution around what can be allowed at trial. And also, I guess, the way that the media has been covering it with us and how Coinage has done this a little bit differently is, you know, basically getting documents from SBF himself saying, here's my defense. And here's what I'm prepared to say at trial. Right. The, the televised portion, if it will be televised, or at least the publicized portion of the trial in the courtroom, defense prosecution arguments, isn't set to begin for a little over a month on October 3rd. But the legal battle has been happening since almost the opening moments when SBF was charged over the bail conditions, as, we, as you may have seen last month, SBF was remanded to jail, I guess this past month, right? And recently, there are even more motions flying back and forth about what exactly the defense and prosecution are allowed to present at court. SBF faced a bit of a challenge today over some of his motions being denied over what he could present. But truly a complex trial, and we've done our best to dig into every aspect of it. So let me just ask you, how are you feeling about the case at this moment? It's been nuts. It has been wild, even by the measure of everyone who, you know, you and I were both in the courtroom talking to a bunch of reporters who don't even cover crypto. They cover crimes and have seen a lot more of this than both you and I have. And even by their standards of having been in courtrooms for years, decades even, 
They're saying this is some wild stuff that they've seen. Mostly the idea of, you know, the guy we're talking about before the trial even starts has now been thrown in jail. SPF is just a couple blocks from our studio where we're recording this podcast right now. So it has been wild to think about kind of where this all started since you and I have been digging into all this when I flew out to Palo Alto to meet with Sam in his parents' home to fast forward to where, you know, I'm sitting behind his mom and his dad as he's put in handcuffs and marched away. It's been, you know, just a matter of weeks that we've seen that play out. And you're right. We've kind of highlighted what are these pieces of his defense. And now the big question, as we've been exploring with Mark Litt, Bernie Madoff's former prosecutor, is how real is it that those points are going to hold any water when it comes to trial? And so, I don't know, to answer your question, Abrams, how am I feeling about everything? I'm a little confused, to be honest with you. I'm a little uh, torn, and I think that that's the feeling that some of these jurors are going to feel when they actually go and say, wait, who's telling the truth on this? Is it the prosecution or is it the defense? We'll say more about that because I think if you're coming into this case with not a huge understanding, you've seen SBF's face plastered all over the news. You see him as the biggest fraudster since Bernie Madoff, the billion-dollar fraudster. The average person must be thinking they're going to throw this guy in jail for a long time. What have you learned in the last few weeks that have left you torn? Because I'm also, I've gone through my own journey of sometimes I believe SBF more, sometimes I believe him less. How would you describe your, why are you torn? I guess I'm torn because, you know, uh, what we've been trying to do is find the real facts, right? We were presented with a defense as a juror is going to be presented with. Twelve jurors are going to say, is this real or is it not? I'm torn because you've got facts on both sides. You've got some real quote-unquote misreporting from a lot of people just because of the news cycle and the way that it was conveyed in that huge collapse of, oh, he's a criminal, kind of guilty before innocent, which is not usually how, you things, how, how the justice system works. So yeah, I guess I would describe torn in the sense of you have someone who is going to trial and trying to say I'm innocent, and you have certain facts that don't match up with that, but then you also on the side of the prosecution have certain things that are being misrepresented almost just as well in terms of, you know, what actually played out. So, I don't know. I guess that's how these games are played. You're not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. That's why we had Mark Lick come in and say, look, as a lawyer, here's what's going on. And I think he's been super helpful as we've covered this in episode one, two, and three thus far for what exactly is going on. But you wouldn't describe yourself equally as torn? Maybe not torn, but I'd say my understanding of the case has evolved a lot from the early reporting. I mean, back in the day, it felt like a massive fraud. There were polycules and drug use and, and nobody really knew what was going on. And all of these early reports coming out alleging different things about Alameda and money losing and the different chats that were being held. And now that we have more of a holistic view of this story, we're separated from the collapse by almost a year at this point. We've learned that some of the allegations, some of the more colorful ones around polycules were probably overstated. And we've learned that, look, I don't, I don't think that FTX at its core was a fraudulent business. I think that starting a crypto company at the time they started a crypto company is very challenging. And that's why I think it's useful to look at Binance because they face a lot of the same problems with jurisdictional and regulational uncertainty, trying to build up reputation in crypto, but also launching an exchange token and doing some things that may use crypto economics, may use Ponzinomics in ways that are okay, maybe not okay. Binance obviously is still here. FTX has collapsed. So I think understanding exactly what 
led to that collapse. And it wasn't anything like SBF taking the money and running. It wasn't anything like that their volumes were fake from the beginning or the deposits were fake from the beginning. Yeah. It really was a critical oversight that led to a cascading effect that took down the exchange. Yeah. And the main question here is, was that oversight criminal? Was it the intent to defraud? And I go back and forth, but it's a much more complex story than I think that early story that the media was telling. Well, it's tough to communicate this in a headline, but you're, you're teasing it out of me. You're pulling it out of me right now in terms of why I am torn. And I think that what you just said is pretty important. I'm torn because looking at it through the lens of a crypto founder, it is something that you can sympathize with. That if banks don't let crypto companies sign up the right way or as easily as any other business, what do you do if you actually want to get started? And that is something that is true. And even tracking some of these things, how do you track crypto plus bank transactions if you struggle to even get a bank account? And so there are certain elements that once you're in it and you know it, there are complexities that are different than almost any other business. So like I'm torn in the sense of, that some of this is not being judged fairly off the get-go. And of course, I don't want to go too far in that extreme and say, yeah, crypto is hard, so fraud's fine. (laughs) I'm not saying that, but I am saying that there is some truth to all this. And I think even since we've been covering this, another huge case also went to or or got to sentencing. Nate Chastain, the first person who had been charged with quote-unquote insider trading in the realm of NFTs, you had the judge in that case basically pointing out maybe that case would not have been brought if the government didn't want to go after NFTs. And he kind of got caught up in that. And so, I don't know, there is an element of that. Of course, fraud's fraud, as we've discussed in multiple episodes here, but it is interesting. And so I guess that brings us to, as we are discussing, you know, come the beginning of this trial, jurors will have to weigh not whether SBF is just ephemerally guilty or innocent, They're going to be judging on seven counts, seven charges specifically, if SPF is guilty. Importantly, they all kind of stem from a lot of the same things. Like we said, FTX and Alameda, what was that relationship? What did SPF direct? And what exactly happened with the funds involved? So just going through these, you and I have read a lot of this and heard a lot of people say these charges before, but to go through them once more, seven counts now used to be more, but for this particular trial, we're looking at seven counts. SBF is going to have to defend himself on these seven counts. Number one, wire fraud on the customers of FTX and conspiracy to commit wire fraud on the customers of FTX. Wire fraud on lenders to Alameda Research and conspiracy to commit wire fraud on those lenders. Conspiracy to commit securities fraud on investors in FTX. Conspiracy to commit commodities fraud on customers of FTX in connection with purchase and sales of cryptocurrencies and swaps. And seven, conspiracy to commit money laundering. That's a lot of charges. Right. And he'll face even more at his second trial in March, which I believe is is scheduled. Um, And that deals with like the foreign corrupt practices charge, right? But these seven charges deal, as we've said before, not necessarily with the collapse of FTX, but the behavior that may have led to the collapse, or at least that's the narrative that prosecutors are going to try to argue. Yes. And as if you ask SBF, as he kind of lays out in his documents, they all stem from the first count, which is the fact that, okay, Did Sam have an intent to defraud? And as we covered from the very first episode in this series, the intent to defraud is interesting because you can't really hold him guilty if he didn't know what was going on at Alameda Research, which is why we covered it first as kind of the most important piece of his defense. Right. And Sam, look, in these documents, 
He points to his years-long commitment towards effective altruism, which is a philosophical movement that seeks to do the most good with every dollar you spend. Now, I've seen, I personally have some experience researching this movement for stories, and I've seen some people misinterpret what it means. There are definitely different factions of the movement. Some of them, and the parts I personally empathize the most with, simply argue, hey, instead of donating to a politician here so they could run an extra ad, why don't you donate towards distributing malarial nets in Africa that could actually save people's lives? Something simple like that. When you start expanding those conclusions, you can start getting into tricky situations, one of which is the idea behind earning to give. The idea is I could work as a pro bono lawyer my whole life helping a few clients, or I could start a crypto exchange, make billions of dollars, and then pay to completely revolutionize the justice system, or I could hire free lawyers, or I could lobby politics. And this is when it starts getting confusing. But Sam's stated goal, as he's always kept to, is he wants to do the most good for the most people. That's what the defense is going to portray. The prosecution, and I think the reason why one of the first things they did was lock down his deputies, get them to flip, get them on their side. They're the only ones, according to what Mark Litt told us, that are going to be able to say, really, definitively, this was Sam's intent, or at least, I think, point to doubts in how he presents his intent. And I do think that's going to be the crux, the relationship between Sam and his three top deputies who are testifying for the prosecution, Carolyn Ellison, Nishad Singh, and Gary Wang. Yeah, to go up against, as we highlighted before, to go up against three of your, quote, co-conspirators is a bit of a tricky thing, a three-on-one that you kind of got to overcome. Not always the easiest task at hand. But you're right to point out, I think, you know, the idea of the government's case and the defense's case in terms of what happened, what is true, what is objective fact. And inevitably, that's where we're going to land. At the end of this trial is objective fact in the middle here. I don't know if you want to take the side of walking through what the defense might say happened here in our little summary of the game. But the defense is going to go out there and say, look, our client is not guilty on any of these counts because he didn't know what was going on. Essentially, yeah. I think the defense is going to argue that SBF placed too much trust in these deputies. And also, I'm really interested in hearing from Gary Wang because from all the people in the FTX fiasco, he's one of the most mysterious. He was also friends with SBF for years. I believe they were college roommates or they were friend. He was friends with his brother in high school, something like that. Like they've known each other for a very long time. And to see this relationship come to a head in court might be really exciting. But yes, let's put you in the courtroom. Zach Abrams walks in. You've morphed bodies into the body of Mark Cohen. You're now Sam's defense attorney. Sure. You're sitting before Judge Kaplan. Come the trial beginning. Your opening statements to the court are? Well, you didn't give me any time to repair, <laughs> but it would be something along the lines of SBF has always tried to do the right thing, and he did it incredibly well. He built an incredibly powerful business that was only taken down when he placed too much faith in the wrong people, the wrong deputies, the wrong lawyers. Did he make mistakes? Yes. Has SBF admitted that over and over repeatedly? Did he plan on telling Congress I fucked up in the first line? of his testimony? Yes. However, he doesn't see himself as the mustache-twiddling villain that a lot of people choose to see him as, who started out with the intent to create a fraud. Instead, 
through circumstances that perhaps he could have controlled. And he admits, look, I should have been running my company more instead of trying to lobby for crypto on Capitol Hill. But they might argue that FTX could have paid back the creditors had Sam remained in power. But at the end of the day, Sam didn't set out here to steal people's money and make their lives miserable. He set out to try to make the world better, and he messed up along the way. But he should not be thrown in prison for the rest of his life because of that. And that will be a tough case to be made if you believe kind of the news reports that have thus far come out, I suppose, about all of this. And I, on the other side, as the government, as the prosecutors in this podcast, would probably look at the facts quite differently than what you just outlined. I would say, if I was, uh, I suppose, the leading attorney on this one, Danielle Sassoon, I would come out and I would say, well, we have a different way to paint the facts here. Basically, from the very beginning, from the very idea of FTX being created in its relationship with Alameda Research, this defendant, Sam Bankman-Fried, had always wanted to commit fraud and never, in any dealings with his alleged co-conspirators here, had any other plan other than defrauding customers out of their money, is what I'm going to show. And the way I'm going to show it is digging into a bunch of different problematic things that we've already kind of heard from John Ray out of the bankruptcy summation of what exactly happened and where funds went, which was Alameda was taking in customer deposits through a shady web of bank accounts and basically doing whatever they wanted to do with those funds. And you had a bunch of problems then hit last year and you had the thing collapse. And that was because of all the crimes that they committed. And we will go one through one or one by one on how exactly that happened. And oh, yes, by the way, I have all the co-conspirators saying that the guy who's guilty of this is Sam Bankman-Fried. That's generally what I would do. And I don't know. Maybe it's going to work. Maybe it's not. Well, I guess we'll find out come trial time. Well, so let me ask you, what do you think now is the best point that the defense has? As make-believe prosecutor, what do I think is the best point that the defense has? Right. I'll say I think the best point that the prosecution has against my defense Well, what I thought was interesting was Sam plans to call an expert witness that says, look, in the financial services industry, the commingling of funds is common, backdating agreements and signing them because they were verbal agreements made in a startup that didn't have great documentation is common. Crypto is hard with regulation. This expert witness is going to argue that SBF was doing his best to navigate an incredibly difficult landscape. However, I feel like the prosecution's best point has to do with a lot of the ways that Sam presented his business. For example, there is a statement that John Ray, I believe, included in one of his debtors' reports and that we included in one of our videos as well, where Sam Bankman-Fried said, look, the reason why I named my firm Alameda Research is that if you name your company, we do multinational crypto arbitrage, no bank is going to work with you, but everybody wants to work with a research institute. So he named his firm Alameda Research in order to escape the enhanced due diligence proposals. That to me is maybe not a smoking gun of evidence, but it certainly points to a philosophy that's towards cutting corners rather than doing everything the right way. And I think that that mindset is going to be incredibly difficult if the prosecution can create a narrative that shows a lot of backing to that thinking. Well, I think that is where the prosecution has a bunch of layups to make, because as I said, most importantly, they have Caroline Ellison sitting there already who has pled guilty, along with two others who have already pled guilty about what exactly happened. And in that sworn testimony that we've already seen, and again, who knows what's going to happen once they take the stand, but essentially saying we did all of this at Sam's direction. And who knows, again, what kind of documents or what kind of 
pieces of information will pop up at trial to say that is the truth. And that could be pretty damning for the 12 jurors who will be in that jurors box, jury box to say, yeah, I think that's probably what happened here. So, you know, again, I feel like a lot of the uh, theatrics that we all see on like Law and Order SVU, shout out Dick Wolf for what you've done for TV and courtrooms everywhere. But I don't necessarily think it's going to be like that in this trial, since, as you said, we've already poured through all the documents and know who's going to say what here. And if you think about a three on one, as we've covered, it's not easy. Because I would say that it's a pretty big slam dunk for the prosecution to have some of the filings and, again, so much of what Sam has said on the record in terms of even setting up Alameda's accounts. Obviously not good. If you're a defense attorney, you don't want them saying all these things out there in the public. And you don't want a paper trail of all this. And I think that's what the prosecution has already showed that they have, which is you sign up for this bank account. You weren't truthful then. Look at what it led to. But you say you're torn, so what do you think are the biggest points the defense has? If they somehow get Sam Bankman-Free to quit it, what will have done it? I still think the most important witness here, and I think his actions show why and reveal that this is true, is that Caroline Ellison is the government's strongest witness. And I think that's why they reacted so strongly since we started talking about it in episode one of this series, that as soon as he started to maybe, potentially... All you need is probable cause that what he was doing was witness tampering. The second that was there, the government swept in and said, we have to put Sam Bankman-Fried behind bars because he's intimidating our witnesses. And I think you might debate me on this, but I think if it was anyone else, they wouldn't have cared so much because Ryan Miller, one of the other witnesses here, basically, you know, was the second example the judge used to put Sam Bankman-Fried behind bars. And that happened back in January. So... Call it strike one if you want, but I just think it's a weaker pitch, essentially, is why it took Caroline Ellison being quote-unquote targeted here, because the government knows how important that testimony is and have seen what she's prepared to admit to. And if she says, we did all of this, that's not disputed. Definitely Alameda, and definitely the $8 billion gap between Alameda and FTX exists. That's the one piece of Sam's story that matches with the government's story. What doesn't match is who knew what and when. And if you have Caroline Ellison with proof saying, no, Sam knew and he directed it to us, that would be the most damning thing for the defense, I would say. Yeah, that's certainly, well, in regards to what you were saying about Caroline, I think that's possible, though. It's also true that that attempted witness tampering was in the New York Times, whereas with Ryan Miller, it was a telegram message to him that mm-hmm. he you know, notified the public of, but it didn't become a huge news story. But Yeah, when the judge explained it, I believe in the courtroom, or maybe it was the the prosecution's lawyers, but if I'm somebody else who's considering testifying against SBF, and I see that he's willing to publicize our private correspondences to embarrass me, even correspondences that don't relate strictly to the business, which was the case with the Carolyn Ellison New York Times leaks, seeing that he has the willingness to do that might affect my decision to testify. So I think that justification for locking him up to keep a closer eye on him does ring true to me. Mm -hmm. Though, as we've discussed before, it seems like such a win for the prosecution if they're still trying to get a plea deal out of this, trying to avoid going to trial is putting him in a much less hospitable situation, a situation where he's much more likely to say, 
get me out of here. I'll sign whatever confession you want. And that brings us to, I suppose, Bernie Madoff, because as everyone's always talked about, and to answer your question about what is the biggest thing to highlight here, I think maybe as a contrarian, watching all the news coverage and comparisons to Bernie Madoff, my gut made me say, hold up now, SBF isn't Bernie Madoff. And of course, I think you would agree, even coming into this, kind of, you know, not having met Sam before, you would also say that the facts do stipulate that FTX was a real business. Even Mark Litt, Bernie Madoff's former prosecutor, said he's no Bernie Madoff. This is not a Ponzi scheme. But fraud is fraud, and it will have to show, this case will show what he knew and what he said and may have misrepresented to customers and or investors. And if we use Bernie Madoff as a jumping off point, as we discussed, Bernie Madoff took a plea deal and kind of not even a deal. He just pled guilty. And he pled guilty because that was kind of a family affair. And if you're going to be the fall guy, you don't have to give up anybody else. You go to jail. And by not really negotiating at all, the man wound up with 150 years in prison and died in prison. So that's Bernie Madoff. And that's a Ponzi scheme. Where I look at SBF and kind of why the, the like, feeling is being torn is because if you read the media coverage, it's not presented that way. It's presented as SBF is Bernie Madoff. He's an evil man. And I don't think that's necessarily where the truth falls in this story. But at the same time, it's a ton of money. It's billions of dollars that people have been conned, quote unquote, conned out of. And uh, at least objectively, they lost it. We've talked to Travis. uh, Yes, but that's what I'm struggling with, too. I mean, that's I'm not even torn about SBF necessarily as much as I am torn about. I lost money in BlockFi. What about that? People lost money in Voyager. Both companies, by the way, as we covered in episode three, that SBF tried to step in and save. So from where I sat, if he was successful in that, great, you know, but not the case. You don't see Flory Marquez getting charged. Alex Mashinsky is facing now charges of fraud from Celsius. But the question there being 150 years for Bernie Madoff, billions of dollars in quote unquote losses for customers at FTX, billions of losses in people who fell for Madoff's Ponzi scheme, like where does the punishment fall? Right. And what does that look like? And is that justice? Well, that's a big question. I mean, it's tough for me to think that the government spending money to put SBF away for a long time is better than somehow just having him work for restitution. Though I know, like, I don't know, I've, I've complicated feelings around the justice system. <laughs> like building another FTX, making money and then giving it away? Not necessarily building another FTX, but if you take SBF's stated goal as true, if nothing else, that he wants to help people, I'm not sure how the world would best be served by locking SBF up in a cage. What's interesting is, I guess, what's changed, right? Since I visited Sam and he gave me his defense, what's changed a bit is what we've seen with John Ray in the bankruptcy side. Because as we've discussed with FTX victims, you know, their claims have technically risen. People are getting a little bit more optimistic that FTX might come back and start making money to where they get paid back, not just pennies on the dollar, but maybe closer to a dollar, not super far away. And you also have, I guess, this idea of if that were to happen, doesn't it also prove that FTX maybe could have not been a fraud, like that it could have existed in a way that if there weren't a liquidity crisis, maybe again, because as we highlighted in episode three, because Binance and CZ saw a chance to strike, could it have survived? And could we be looking at this entirely differently? And Sam's life would be entirely different as well. 
And those are weird things because there's not really an apples to apples, certainly in looking at Bernie Madoff, but even other crimes. There's not a scenario in which you murder someone and maybe if things had gone differently, you didn't murder them, I don't think. Like it's, it's kind of a binary, maybe a manslaughter situation, but you're still acting with intent. And I think that that's at the heart of kind of what his defense is, is at no point was my intent. I'm just going to run away with a ton of money. I find this interesting. In the docs, he talks about something that happened this past year at the London Metal Exchange. I don't know if you saw this at all, but for some reason, the price of nickel had begun to shoot up and there was a big seller that was caught in a short squeeze. And basically, this trade was about to blow up and it would have caused a lot of problems. And instead of you know doing the right thing and carrying out the trade as it would have happened, they shut down the entire London Metal Exchange and they basically bailed this one large position holder out at the expense of everybody else. And it is interesting to think about what would have happened if somehow trading on FTT had stopped, or if there were more mechanisms to come in and prevent these bank runs, which are so common in crypto. And I think the problem is crypto has been fighting for the last decade, in a sense, over how much government regulation is appropriate. You have plenty of people who say there should be absolutely none. There should be only DeFi code is law. It should exist at its, its own island. And there's plenty of other also really smart people who say that this is the future of finance, but it's important to provide investor protections. It's important to integrate it with the financial system. And by doing so, we can really boost the power of crypto. And it is true that governments are willing to step in and do incredibly, you know. Sure. We saw that in 08. Right. But does that make its way into a case like this? Does it sway a juror? Well, what I wanted to ask you before, and this is less about the jurors who, who knows how much the jurors will really understand all of this. But what I wanted to ask you was, if SBF is found guilty, what do you think this means for crypto in the United States? Because us, as people who know a lot about this case, see it as a case of business fraud that involves a crypto business. But I think there's a chance that if SBF is found guilty, it's seen as much more of a a value judgment on the crypto industry as a whole. He's seen as the crypto kingpin who fell rather than just the crypto businessman who happened to run into business issues completely unrelated to whatever the blockchain is. Well, if that's the case, then the defense is doubly screwed, in my opinion, because ask any layperson outside of crypto if crypto is a scam. And I think you're probably going to get more of a yes than a no on that one. So if SBF is a lightning rod for all the wrongdoing in crypto, God save the man out there because, yoish, I don't think I would want to be in that seat, quite honestly. But I do think that is kind of one of the elements, right? And like you and I, when we poured over kind of the defense that Sam gave me, the question was like, how much of this is really a legal defense and how much of it is just, hey, is this right? (laughs) And like, of course, that's what any defendant's going to do is, hey, man do you really think I should go to jail? And I think that, you know, there's a lot of pieces in here once we put them in front of Mark Litt and said, how much of this is going to hold water in the trial? You had him basically by gut reaction throwing out pieces of these, including what we covered in episode two, which is also unclear if it's going to be allowed at the trial, which is advice of counsel, which is my lawyer said I was fine, bro. And I don't know You know, you start piecing these things together and certainly, sure, I mean, I guess put me in the juror's box, put you in the juror's box, put anyone listening to this in the juror's box. Like, will you have at some point during this trial reactions of like, ooh, like, yeah, that's maybe not fair to the guy. 
But that's not the at the end. They're going to be like, hey, count one. What do you say? Guilty, not guilty. Count two. Guilty, not guilty. And I don't know. Push comes to shove. I don't know what those elements that are going to stand out at trial that sway jurors are going to be. But to Mark Litt's point, you might only need one person to say, I'm not convinced. Yeah. Um, The advice of counsel stuff is tricky because according to the filings going back and forth, there are big differences between if you tell a lawyer, go and handle this for me, and the lawyer commits a crime, versus if the lawyer was just in the room when you discussed committing a crime and you took their silence as implicit endorsement of the legality of your actions, that does not hold up in court. There are specific precedents that say you can't get away with that. So again, those three deputies that may have been in the room with Sam and his lawyers from uh, the firm Fenwick and what is it? Fenwick, Fenwick and, and West and West or Ryan Miller, who has a past at Sullivan and Cromwell or Dan Friedberg, who was the top lawyer at FTX for a long time. Uh, testimony from all of these people and the exact phrasing and intentionality of what was in the room could end up being important. I mean, I think all of that will end up being important for sure, one way or the other, depending on how much is allowed to be discussed at trial. If Judge Kaplan says, yeah, I'll let you try it, then yeah, maybe some of it starts to appear. But I do think, you know, that was interesting because to your question on how much has changed since we started digging into Sam's defense, given what he's provided to us directly, there wasn't a lot of mention about Fenwick and West. There was way more about Sullivan and Cromwell and this idea of, hey, you promised me a lot of things before I turned this company over to John Ray, your chosen handpicked successor to me. And then he turned around and chose Solcrom that's now on pace to make almost a billion dollars through all this. And that as a defense kind of, you know, again, you can start to see the pieces come together. As Mark Litt told us, on the other side, the government wants to include the bankruptcy facts, the facts that FTX eventually, because of all of these things, wound up in bankruptcy with a huge hole, is because of all the things that came before it. And it completes their story. I think it's kind of interesting that we didn't see, I mean, he mentions Fenwick and West in here, but what he filed in his idea of advice of counsel leans way more in that direction than anything against John J. Ray and Sullivan and Cromwell. So I think that that's kind of, if you think about my discussion with him as a snapshot in time of his defense at that moment before he's in jail to where kind of the advice of counsel argument is moving now, I, I don't know if that like completes his story to kind of use the, the parallel grading metric. And if you're a juror, I don't know if, you know, the big bad boogeyman of my quote-unquote lawyers told me I was fine. I don't know. I don't think it's as neatly presented that way. So will it hold up? I don't know. But those are essentially the two pillars. And then the third one's not even really a defense in the courtroom at all, which is, hey, CZ wasn't exactly helping me out here when he, when he triggered a bank run on FTX. And that also should be talked about, which I think actually probably should be talked about, which is why we talked about it in this series. But looking ahead, Abrams, when you think about what is to come, and how these are going to go. As we discussed, 150 years for Bernie Madoff. For Sam, he's facing, you know, seven counts. And how the jury rules on it could determine some things. Right. I've heard a theoretical maximum penalty of 115 years. That's what the Justice Department said. But um, back in December, I believe. And, you know, you think about good behavior, bad behavior, sentencing, and how all this is going to go past whatever, you know, convictions happen. And the idea of passing on a plea deal if there were one, and what could play out post-conviction or post-acquittal. And it's going to be a decision on seven of those counts. And you and I were talking about this in terms of the lowest bar here. This is giving him the benefit of the doubt. 
is basically seven coin flips in a row and all of them coming up heads. And that's even better odds than really, I think, what it is when you look at it because it's not a coin flip for each count. A lot of these, if you polled the public right now, I think would be maybe more like 99% or 90%. Especially the conspiracy counts are easier to prove because you just have to prove, I believe, the intent to contribute to a conspiracy rather than an actual unlawful action. Yeah, as Mark Litt pointed out to us too, these are charged in pairs, so the government kind of gets two chances. They, they get two bites at the apple, so to speak. And if they can get them on either, bam, that's a conviction. So again, the odds when you stack them, getting convicted on all seven counts, very different than getting convicted on just one. Regardless, he will be on the other side of this, most likely convicted if you just look at the mathematical odds. So when you look at that and how this all plays out, my take is that this could be one way of correcting the narrative. This could be one way of, hey, here's what actually happened, and it's going to play out over a few weeks in the courtroom, and it's going to be covered, and the facts will come out, and maybe someone's going to learn something, and maybe the judge is going to learn something, and maybe that's going to impact the sentencing here, and I'm not going to go to jail for as long as Bernie Madoff went to jail for. I don't think he'll be sentenced. I mean, mathematically, it seems tough for him to be sentenced to quite as long as Bernie Madoff was sentenced for, but if we're just talking about the rest of his life, at least in this trial, I don't anticipate a life sentence. But I think what you're saying in terms of the narrative of this case, it's tough because jurors are not going to be able to, they're going to try their best, but they're not going to be able to, I think, extricate the narrative of FTX from the larger narrative around crypto as being risky and dangerous and prone to collapse. And I think that the prosecution story just fits better into that narrative than the defenses does. And that's why I'm worried about the effects on crypto and the crypto industry if Sam is found guilty for something that has to do with crypto in certain ways, but also doesn't in certain important mm-hmm. ways. Well, let's, let me ask you this too, though, because you and I were both in the courtroom. So I don't, I don't think, have you been in a courtroom before? No, it was my first time. There you go. So You and I walk in there. This was the day that he was actually put into handcuffs and sent to MDC, just a couple blocks from where we are. And we watched that all play out. I feel like one of the things that hasn't necessarily been discussed, but is a part of the last question, is Judge Kaplan's role in all this. A no-nonsense guy, a guy who says no electronics in the courtroom, a guy who has, I think, thus far, kind of operated somewhat fairly in looking at all the facts and ruled before the trial even existed or started. Judge Kaplan said, you need to go to jail because it's probable witness tampering that you participated in when you leaked Caroline Ellison's diaries to the New York Times. And it was a calculated move. And so, you know, when I think about him and this idea of I want to go to trial because the outcome might be better for me, even if I do get convicted, that's one thing is it's going to be Judge Kaplan's call, I think, you know, when it comes to sentencing on this. And I don't think it's I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that Judge Kaplan isn't exactly pleased with the way that SPF has conducted himself thus far. And that's your defense attorney in this in this little role-playing thing that we've conducted here. And I think if I were you, that would be tough for me. Yeah, I get the sense that the judge is very patient, but his patience isn't unlimited. And his patience has certainly been tested by SPF's repeated mischief over the course of the lead-up to the trial. But I do get the sense that Judge Kaplan does want to ensure that SBF is adequately prepared for the trial, not just because that's what we do in our justice system, but because I'm sure he wants to ward off any appeals or any claims of a mistrial based on him 
not having enough time to review discovery materials or prepare with his lawyers or anything like that. Um, If I were Judge Kaplan, I would be trying to work as carefully as possible to prevent any obvious appeals because dragging out this case, I think, is just... In a sense, as as an observer, as a journalist, I really want this case to happen and I want to watch it and then I want the verdict to come out and feel definitive. I'd rather not have years of appeals and cross litigation, but that's unfortunately what we're subject to a lot of the time in these cases. That's kind of how the justice system works. Yeah. But I do think, you know, it's it's an element that a lot of people, unless you've been in the courtroom or even know kind of who this judge is, it's discussed in crypto circles all the time, right? In the Ripple case and in that judge's ruling. And, you know, it really does depend on kind of what the judge has seen from the case, what he's witnessed in the courtroom and activities outside the courtroom and how he wants to rule on certain things. I think the examples of Judge Kaplan's patience running thin is so long that we could probably talk about it for the rest of this podcast. And it's become very obvious that he's kind of at that point and was when he put Sam behind bars. And so, you know, that's tough. And at the end of the day, it does come down to the jury. But something I've learned from following this case so closely is what the jury hears, who they hear from, exactly what the prosecution and the defense are allowed to discuss. A lot of that is up to Judge Kaplan. So while the jury makes the decision at the end of the day, Judge Kaplan helps decide, you know, after filings from the defense and the prosecution, exactly what can be discussed at the trial. So it's an interesting relationship. He's the referee and he's setting the rules of the game as we have basically highlighted in this pregame show. As we head into the actual game itself, most of that's been set. And Judge Kaplan has certainly warned both sides enough about things and has already declared what is going to be uh, permissible in trial and what won't be. And so I think it'll be interesting to watch all of that stuff play out in real time. Looking back on it, though, I wanted to ask you this, too. What kind of has stood out to you the most in pouring through all these documents? We asked the same question of Mark Litt in terms of, is anything here unique? Has anything struck you as interesting or weird, strange? And of course, he's seen a lot of this before. We have not, at least from a legal perspective. But no one can say that they've seen crypto cases like these before because they're kind of a new thing in their own right. So I don't feel too far outside of our respective fields to ask and answer these questions of, has anything struck you as strange when you dug through either the documents that SBF gave us or kind of just seeing what's played out since? I will say Sam's narrative about Carolyn Ellison is very interesting to me because He's attempting to portray her as very in over her head, unable to run the business, Alameda Research, that he set her up to run as co-CEO and then later as full CEO. He complains that she lost, you know, Alameda, he claims at its peak, had a net asset value of around $70 billion. And then a year later, it would be effectively zero, effectively negative $8 billion. And he places a lot of the blame on Carolyn Ellison for failing to hedge against a series of crypto crashes. It just, maybe it was pivoting the strategy. Maybe the, the answer, and I think the simple story behind a lot of the most recent wave of crypto that began in, in 2021 is just that it was really easy to make a crypto business, a crypto hedge fund, Celsius, Voyager, BlockFi, when prices went up and up and up and up. And when the prices started to turn around and go down, you could see exactly which businesses had prepared for it versus which businesses just thought the prices would keep going up forever. And so if Sam Bankman-Fried is 
telling the truth that Carolyn Ellison lost all of his money, all of Alameda's money, failed to hedge, didn't tell him about the hole. That, I think, is really damning conduct for her to have committed. And again, she has already pleaded guilty to all of this. The thing that just I can't get past is he placed her in that position. He appointed her. Sure. He said before, you know, I could make recommendations to Alameda as its manager. I could have replaced leadership. And then other people, or at least in other documents, have told a slightly different story about exactly how much control SBF had over Alameda, exactly how involved he was in those decisions. So in a sense, I think a lot of these SBF docs, you read through them and you just read his narrative and it starts to make a bit of sense. Like what I'm saying here, I think you read these documents and you come away saying, Carolyn Ellison was really not cut out for this job. But the other pieces of evidence that this was his money, he owned 90% of Alameda Research and Gary Wang owned the other 10%. You know, he was involved in the Alameda group chats. All the employees worked together. And Carolyn Ellison was majorly underpaid compared to everybody else. You look at all these things and it's, you start to wonder, like, was Carolyn Ellison evil or did SBF just set up somebody, not even to mention his ex-girlfriend, did he set her up to fail? And so that's, that's one of the ways in which I can read the docs and start to see his narrative, but it doesn't convince me. And none of the narratives in his docs, I can see where he's coming from, but none of them completely convince me. Well, did he set her up to fail on purpose, I think, is the other question that would be posed by the prosecution as a fall girl. And an ex-fall girl. That, I think, is going to be an important piece of this. And again, I think it's why we saw kind of the calculated moves that we did see play out in terms of what was leaked to the New York Times and the risk-reward of that potentially maybe paying off and the punishment that then Sam had to face in being thrown behind bars in the final weeks preparing for his trial. I do think that all that stuff is incredibly important. I do feel like there was one other element that I wanted to ask you about when it comes to some of that in terms of the takeaways and the most interesting pieces of it, because I do think that that is the piece that I'm most interested in watching play out. Is in a what sense, is, it's what are we going to hear? The emotional core of the story, too. It's what were these two top people who were on again, off again relationship, business partners? What was happening between them? And I think it's almost the most. The most Hollywood version of this is the story of Sam and Caroline. So let's wrap this up, because at the end of the day, the juror is going to have to deliver a verdict. And as we said, the most important one is wire fraud on the customers of FTX. The question is, guilty or not guilty? My prediction, if I'm going out on a limb, it'll be a mixed verdict, but SPF will be found guilty on at least some of these seven counts. I don't think that the prosecution has a slam dunk on each of the counts. But again, there's another trial in March. I'm not sure what the sentencing will look like. Again, we've talked about a maximum of 115 years. I don't know what that maximum sentence looks like if he's only sentenced to two, three, or four out of the seven. But I see a mixed verdict coming down here. If I were to weigh in on one of these things, I would say, having been in the courtroom, seeing these prosecutors in other cases, by the way, and taking into account what Mark Litt has said about their job to keep it as simple as possible, presenting the facts to the jurors who are going to weigh in on not a crypto case, not crypto fraud, but just fraud, and what exactly was known and when, they've done it before. 
Nicholas Ruse, the attorney, was also the one that convicted the first ever quote-unquote felon in the realm of NFT trading, insider trading. And I think with this case as well, as we've seen, these prosecutors are incredibly adept at just highlighting not crypto fraud, but just fraud and what happened. And I think given that fact and given the idea that this legal team and SDNY has been all over all of this since, you know, even before SBF went down, FTX went down, I don't think they're going to make what Mark Litt said was the easiest mistake to make here in overcomplicating this case. And for that reason, and what we've already seen from the defense in terms of trying to keep their client out of jail even before the trial began, I think the writing's on the wall on this one, and I don't think it's necessarily super surprising to say odds are in the prosecution's favor to deliver a conviction. That being said, I do think there's a greater chance at acquittal than a lot of casual observers of this case may be expecting, or there's a greater chance of a mixed verdict than a lot of the observers of this case may be expecting. It's more complex than you might think. It might not be, you know, black and white case of fraud, and it might not point completely to his innocence, but there's a lot of complexity here. There's room for a, you know, a gray understanding. And it's unclear exactly how far Judge Kaplan might allow either the defense or the prosecution to uh, have some wiggle room when it comes to maybe stretching what that understanding might be uh, in presenting the facts to the jurors. But Abrams, I got to say, it's been incredibly helpful to have you on this case, Detective Abrams. It's been a pleasure. And I've got to say, at the end of this series, I think we have turned over every stone available to us at this moment. I'm feeling like we did our homework, and I'm very much looking forward to making a big tub of popcorn on October 3rd. (laughs) And there is only one outlet that could say that we got these documents before the trial even began, and that is Coinage. For Coinage head writer Zach Abrams, and for myself, appreciate you looking into the facts with us and exploring what Sam Bankman-Fried's defense is as he heads to trial. I'm Zach Guzman, and that was Zach Abrams. This was the fourth part of Coinage's investigative series covering SBF's defense. As a community-owned Web3 media outlet, Coinage will be breaking down everything we learn at trial at coinage.media. As always, stay safe out there. You've been listening to The SBF Defense on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Follow the Coindesk Podcast Network to get all the Coindesk shows in one place and head over to coindesk.com for all the Sam Bankman-Fried coverage. Thanks for listening.